Okay, if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Matthew chapter 6. And let's, uh, last week we, we started looking at Jesus teaching us, or the two weeks ago now, uh, praying for the, the kingdom to, to come and, and why should we want that. We saw two weeks ago that we don't naturally want that. The reason that, that praying thy kingdom come is a revolutionary prayer is because that's not what the world is naturally praying. We haven't wanted God to be king. We want to be king. We don't want to do what God says. So whether it's individuals or nations, from the beginning, uh, uh, the most wicked people, all the way to God's own people, we've all said we want our kingdoms. Uh, and so we saw if we're going to pray this prayer, your kingdom come, there has to be, that's a revolutionary prayer. It's an unusual prayer, but it's also something that only happens when there's been a revolution in our hearts, where God has already cast uh, the, the, our dead hearts aside and, and placed himself uh, on the thrones of our heart. And so last week we asked the question, well, why do we want the kingdom to come? Why do we want the kingdom of God to come? And we saw there really three ways that the kingdom is referred to in scripture. One is the kingdom. Uh, it's also referred to as the kingdom of God, uh, referred to as the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and so if we want that kingdom to come, why? And so we said there's, there's two basic ways that scripture breaks that down about why the kingdom is so great and why we as Christians would want it. One is that God is great. The, the king of that kingdom, the who of that kingdom is great. So we want, you know, God's kingdom. We don't just want a kingdom to come. We want God's kingdom to come. And so we started last week looking at what does the Bible say makes God so such a great king? What is it that makes it so that we want God to be the ruler uh, and reigner of this kingdom uh, and then next week, we're going to start saying what makes the kingdom so great. So we looked at the who of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. We should want it to come because of who's going to be leading it. And then we're going to see the what of the kingdom next week. What does the Bible say makes the kingdom itself so great? What is that kingdom like? And why is that such a blessing to us so that we would say, yeah, have that kingdom come. We want you coming and we want you to bring uh, your kingdom with you. So let's read. Matthew chapter 6, we'll start again in verse 9, we'll read the Lord's Prayer, and then we'll continue looking at how, what does the Bible teach us about these things. So let's stand uh, in the honor of reading the Word of God, and even as we stand, uh, let's give a short prayer uh, that our hearts would be honoring Him even more than, than our bodies. So beginning in verse 9, uh, Jesus tells them to pray them like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Let's pray. Our father in heaven, may your kingdom come and may we be yearning for that coming kingdom. May we be celebrating as we see it May we be rejoicing in you and in your son. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So last week we started looking at uh, what makes uh, this kingdom great, really what the Bible says, because the Bible actually talks about God as, as king and why having God as king is so great. And so the first thing we saw last week is the Bible says that God is the great king, sort of like the, uh, the as you could say, the king of kings, the epitome of kings. God is the king that all other kings pretend to be. 
And so we looked at what the Bible says makes God the great king. That the kings of this earth, they make these promises, but, but they can't keep them. God can. And so we're able to see what does God do as great king. Last week we saw that God, uh, that he protects his people, that he guides his people, that he defends his name, that he is the, the creator, that he alone is creator. That's what makes God the great king. And so that's what we spent time on last week, moving through those verses. And if you want to be reminded or if you missed it uh, on the handout, we've got those verses laid out for you. You can see those things uh, and how scripture says them. Uh, so that, that's the kingdom we long for. That's the king. But, but that's not all that the Bible says about what makes God a great king. And that's not all that should move us to pray, your kingdom come. What else does the Bible say about God as king that makes him a king that we should want? The next thing that we're going to see is that the Bible tells us we should want God as king because God is the king of righteous love and holy hatred. God is the king of righteous love and holy hatred. Turn to Psalm 45. Here we have one of those great and insightful messianic king psalms where you're going if you're reading this you know 800 years before christ and you don't see that this is pointing to something uh i mean this is this is laying it out here and of course they did you're a teacher of israel and you don't know these things these things are clear uh look at how it describes this king in psalm 45 look at down in verse 4 it says in your majesty ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Now, much of of this psalm, of this verse, really, and this psalm is about the, the reign of this king and, and why his reign is going to be great. And so we'll spend a lot of time, uh, actually, we'll dive back into this psalm a little bit next week when we look at what makes his reign so great. But that, if you look at this final verse, verse 7, if you look at this final verse, it is the character of God, really, the end of verse 6 too, with it, it is the character of God that drives the kingdom of God. In other words, why does God reign the way he does? Why is his kingdom like this? Why, why is his scepter one of uprightness? Why is this? It is because God loves righteousness and hates wickedness. So since God loves righteousness, he's going to make sure that righteousness is rewarded. Since God hates wickedness, he's going to make sure that wickedness gets what it deserves as well. God is a king who loves righteousness and who hates wickedness and in whose kingdom there will be a love of righteousness and a hatred of wickedness. That's what makes him a great king. And that's what will make his kingdom one, as, as Psalm 45 says, one of uprightness. Now, of course, we love to talk about the, 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 the God's love for righteousness. I don't think that's where we get tripped up when we're talking about what makes God a great king. But God's, God's not sharpening his arrows in this passage for the righteous. It's not the, it's not the righteous that are falling under him. So if, if we're going to understand what makes God a great king, we must understand, yes, he loves righteousness and he hates wickedness. 
If we want to pray your kingdom come, then we must, we must be a people who loves that God loves righteousness and a people that loves that God hates wickedness. We see the same idea in Psalm 11. We see the people of God praise God for his hatred of wickedness. Beginning in verse 4, he says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. What is God doing in heaven? You ever wonder that? You ever think, what's he doing? Well, here it tells us. He's watching is what he's doing. He is testing the righteous and he is hating the wicked. In other words, when God brings calamity, so, so when God brings calamity to the life of, of someone, if, if those people are his children, then that calamity is a refining fire. It is a testing for them. It is not chaos. It has a point, and the point is for their good. But when calamity comes to the wicked, it comes as just punishment. This is, a, this is why, again... I, I don't think the idea or the phrase hate the sin, love the sinner is actually very helpful because you're going you're gonna to read these things in scripture and go, I don't know what to do here where God says he hates the wicked. How do I handle that? Because I thought hate the sin, love the sinner. Now, if hate the sin, love the sinner was a Bible verse, then I'd say, yeah, do that. But if we're trying to encapsulate what God is saying, it may not be the most helpful way because here it says that God, that God himself hates the wicked. That, that, that it is a hatred. Look at what it says. It's a hatred down to his very soul. But notice that doesn't bother the psalmist here. It doesn't, God, the psalmist doesn't go, and I don't know how to deal with that, God. The psalmist joins in. And we actually get a prayer from the psalmist. What does the psalmist pray? What does God move the psalmist to pray in this passage? What is his prayer in Psalm 11? If you look at verse 6, what is the one thing he asked God to do? Let him rain coals on the wicked. So not only does God hate the wicked, we're supposed to hate the wicked and wickedness as well. We must be able to praise God for his love of righteousness and also able to praise God for his holy hatred of sin. This is a discussion I had at the abortion mill the other day. I met a man at the abortion mill, and his big shock, what he was trying to get me with was, what do you do with hell? And I was like, do you think I've never thought of this before? Do you think you're the first person to be like, what do we, what do, we do with hell? And he was like, because God sends people there. And he thought I was going to be like, oh, no. Uh, and instead, I, I told him, I said, God would be glorified and glorious and worthy of worship if he sent everyone to hell. If he was just justice and no grace. So the angels would praise him for eternity. Uh, that he would receive eternal praise if, if everything was just justice. Of course, he didn't, he didn't like that. He had a problem with that. Uh, but that didn't shock me because, again, like I told him, you are here to murder your baby. So it's probably going to throw you off that God, hates, that God hates wickedness. 
We, it, we want our father's kingdom to come because he's going to be the type of king that all kings are called to be. And that is one that loves the good and hates the bad. And so if we're going to be a people that want God's kingdom to come, we have to make sure that we love both aspects of that reign of God. Look, if we, if we hear the idea of hell and it makes us uncomfortable, we hear God's holy justice. We hear that his arrows are buried in the hearts of his enemies. And if we go, I don't know what to do with that. The problem isn't God. The problem is us. The problem is our understanding of sin. The problem is we don't get what, we don't understand the holiness that we're supposed to understand. We don't understand these things. And so we've got to make sure if we want his kingdom to come, we realize we want God to come uh, and bless the righteous and punish, punish the wicked. Now, I will say this. Paul tells us the chief way, chief way that we heap coals on the wicked is to leave the vengeance to the Lord and instead do good to the wicked ourselves. So we, as, as this understanding is, is you know, so Psalm, the, here in Psalm 11, he prays, heap coals upon the wicked. Paul tells us in Romans how to do that. And so in Romans 12, verse 19 through 21, it says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with Good. So the Old Testament gives us this truth, this truth in, in shadow the, that is true, but is fully revealed in the light of the sun. So now we see, are we, supposed to, are we supposed to hate the wicked? Yes. Are we supposed to want evil and evil men to be consumed? Are we supposed to want God's arrows to be buried in their hearts? And are we supposed to want, you know, uh, coals to be poured on their heads? Yes. But what is the chief way that ha- that, that happens? by God's people doing good even to our enemies. That's the way. And so when we understand that, we recognize that's the way that God says, you want to hate the wicked, this is how you do it. And the world goes, well, that didn't seem like hatred. Like this is, this is, the, way, this is the way the wicked die is when they are destroyed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Either to have someone do good to them and they run further from the gospel and show just how much they hated it and hate the Lord. That even when someone does good to them, they don't want to see it. They want to get further from it. Or they'll see it and that work of the gospel will plunge the arrow of God into their heart and kill their dead heart and by some great grace make them alive. So we must praise God. God is Why is God a, a great king? Because he is a king that loves righteousness and hates wickedness. He has a righteous love and a holy hatred. Psalm 145, verse 7. But God's not just a God of feelings. It's not just how he feels about the righteous. It's not just how he feels about the wicked. He's also a God of, of action. And so the next thing we see is, is one of the reasons God is great is because of his might. God is the king of might. He is sovereignly powerful. There is, there is behind God a power unlike anything else on this earth, unlike any king. So look at Psalm 93. 
Psalm 93. So this is, this is why we want his kingdom to come. Because the king is going to bring with him. This is the great king. He's going he's to bring with him uh, a, a love of righteousness, a holy hatred for wickedness. And he's going to come in might and in power. So Psalm 93, beginning in verse 1. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. And so you've got this, the Lord is this majestic one. His reign is majestic and he's got this belt of strength wrapped around his robe. So he's majestic and the thing that's holding his majesty in place is his strength. And that belt is so secure that it says the world is established by that strength and shall never be moved. Nothing is going to be able to disrobe the majesty of God. Why? Because his strength is what binds his majesty. And so all of creation is then upheld. You get get verse 3 and 4. We see the sort of this tumultuous. Well, what about about these great grand things that strike the Lord? So verse 3. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice, right? So think of the the flood. Like you get the floods of this world lifting up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. So we've got this king. What What is God praised for as king here? So we've got a king bringing his kingdom. God is praised here for his strength. For, as it says at the end of verse 4, for his might. The Lord on high is mighty. Even against, and, and the psalmist pits here, the, 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 the most powerful elements, not of people, but of creation itself. Right? We saw what happened when creation, uh, when the waters rose up against millions and millions and millions of people uh, at the flood. Were any of them able to stop the floodwaters by their great might? No. And we see it all the time. You see these stories of floods and the waters come in and entire cities are just destroyed. No one goes, I got this, and plants their feet, you know, and sort of lets it wash over them. And they're like, I have the belt of strength on. Like no one is able to do that. Why? Because the waters are mightier. The waters are mightier than any of us. It says, look, God is mightier than many waters. He's mightier than the waves of the sea. God is, the Lord on high is mighty. Now, why does his strength matter though? It actually tells us in verse five. It is his strength that makes it so that what he says is trustworthy. That, 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 that separates him. It, it holifies him against all the other kings of this world that he's so strong that what he says, you can guarantee it will happen. So look at what it says in verse five. So he's just laid out the mightiness of God, the might of God, how amazing his might is. The seas can't stop him. The waves, none of that can stop him. He is mighty. So what do we do with that? Verse five, he says, your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forever. I always give people this this twofold adage when it comes to anxiety. Always remember that God is good and that he is in control. Having having a, so if you had a God who was good, that would be that would be great. 
But if our good God is not in control, then, then we've got no hope, right? He might, he might wish the best for us, but he can't promise it, right? I, I, I'm a good God. I want good things to happen to you, but there's only so much I can do. So that's if God were good, but not in control. But God is not just going to be a good king. He's not just going to be a noble king. He's not just going to be a king that loves righteousness and, and hates wickedness. He is a mighty king who is able to do all that he says so that we can trust his word. The idea that, that, that trusting God's word, that we're able to trust God's word because of his power is not something new. The, Bible's, the Bible tells us all the time, like the reason you can trust in God's word is because he's the one backing it up. This is the same reason you can trust in the U.S. dollar, or the reason they say you can trust in the U.S. dollar, uh, is because there's a whole bunch of gold backing it up, right? Like, you'll be, a, you'll be all right. Like, uh, you know, if you deposit money in the bank, right, you've got the FDIC making sure if there's some happens, you'll get it back. Like, all these reasons to trust it. But why can you trust God's word? Because who is the one backing it up? God himself. And there is no one, no one that can cause his word to not succeed. In fact, if, it, 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 so you think, I mean, plenty of examples, Moses uh, against the magicians and Pharaoh, you think of Elijah, prophets of Baal, prophets of Asherah. But what about this famous promise of God's word? Have you ever heard this? The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Now, if I were to ask you, where is that found? Do you know where it's found? Well, it's funny is it's found in Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. It's also found in Psalm chapter 18, verse 30. It's also found in 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 31. It's actually, that phrase is repeated multiple times in scripture. It, it was a phrase originally coined by David when the Lord delivered him from all his enemies. He was praising that God's word is always true and always serves as a shield. Now, quick clarification. This word true here doesn't mean correct. In other words, it doesn't mean like we use true or false. That's not, that's not how it's being used here. Uh, the, the, the word used true here is more like the phrase we use that something is tried and true. That it is, that it is trustworthy. In other words, the idea behind this, it's a word uh, this word is sometimes used for like refiner's fire and stuff like that, that it's been refined, that it's been, you can trust it. It's, it's well, it's, it's, it's well made, that sort of idea. The, in other words, the Lord's, the Lord's word has been tested and it is always passed. It has always come through. It is true. It has been tried and true. But what is it that made God's word so sure? Well, those passages that I mentioned actually tell us what makes the word of God so sure why is it able to stand the test what makes it true well the one thing we know is that it's because behind god's word is his great strength so look at this passage in second samuel second samuel chapter 22 where where david first coins this we're going to see why why is his word true david why is his word true why why like we saw just a minute ago in psalm 93 uh what makes his word true david is going to tell us it is his great might that makes his word true. So look at what it says. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way 
blameless. So just like we saw in Psalm 93, what is it that makes David sure in God's word? It is God's might. He is a strong refuge. The word of God is going to prove true. He is going to be a shield, something that you can trust in, that you can commit your life to and not be shown to be a fool. Why? Because behind God's word is God himself. And he will not just keep his word, he will make sure his word is kept. His strength will defend his word. He is a king who doesn't just make promises. He is the king who can back up every single word that he says. That is the great power of God. Look at, look at it in Psalm 18. Psalm 18, we get a slightly different variation. Because we're going to see not only does God have strength, but he's got so much strength that he actually gives his might to his people. So this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? The God who equipped me with strength and made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. It's bow season. I know several of you are actually using bows of bronze, so you know how difficult it is to bend a bow of bronze. Um, and you're reading that, you're going, man, I'm thankful for compound bows right now. Or if you're older, you're like, I'm thankful for crossbows. Um, so anyway, so we see here what? God is a mighty king. Again, we see nothing can stop him. And he works his might on behalf of his kingdom. So God takes his might. He's not just showing off his might. He uses his might to make sure that we know we can trust him. He uses his might to be our shield. He uses his might to give us his word as a good king. And then his might backs it up. But he doesn't just use his might on behalf of his kingdom and his people. He actually works his might into his people. He is the one who trains our hands for war, who makes our arms so that we can bend bows of bronze for his glory. God is so strong that not only is his strength enough, but he has enough strength to to lend it, to give it to to his people. So why do we want God to come? Because he comes in might and he comes in might and with might. And so if you're fighting this war and you're, you're fighting for the kingdom, your family is a little outpost of the kingdom that you've got. And you're trying to live a, a godly life and you want God to be glorified. And you're saying, your kingdom come. One of the things you're praying is, God, come in your might. And with that might, train my hands for war. For the war of being a godly husband. For the war of being a good father, a good mother. And Christian, you know, that's the, that's the, greatest, that's the greatest war we fight. It's not like we step outside and there's, you know, a bunch of Satanists trying to get us where we get in our car and get to work or something like that. It's that battle to glorify God in our everyday, day-to-day lives. To make much of him with every breath that we have. That's why in Deuteronomy, before they go and take this conquered kingdom, what does the Lord tell them? Remember, remember, and so talk about me when you get up, when you rise, when you sit down. That's what's going to keep your children from forgetting. And that's what's going to make sure you don't get shucked out of this land. You might drive all these people out, but if you forget about me and you don't train your hands for war, not just with these nations around you, but in your own homes, 
So when we say, when we say, God, your kingdom come, we are praying for rescue, but we're also, also praying uh, for revitalization, for training ourselves. So you put all these things uh, together, it's no wonder that the Bible says that God is the king of glory. So we're thinking about what makes God great. Why is he such a great king? He is, he is this mighty king. Uh, he, I mean, he is the, the great king. He's the king who loves righteousness, hates wickedness. He's got this great might behind him. So all of these descriptions from scripture about what makes God a great king. And so then lastly, it says, look, he is the king of glory. Look at Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10. Lift up your heads, O gates. And be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, Yahweh, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory selah so god is glorious and why why is he glorious well first what does the word glorious even mean what does it mean that he is the the king of glory well, i love i love the hebrew word for for glory it's actually a word that really just means heavy or weighty like when they go to a, a king's treasure room and he had a lot of he had a lot of gold. They would say that it was, he had a weighty, he had a glorious amount of gold. And that just didn't just mean like, oh, that's glorious. It meant it weighed a lot. Like it was a hefty amount of gold. So the idea being you've got a bunch of something's vast, something is beyond our comprehension. In other words, we need to realize that, that glory of God is realizing who God really is. It is the weightiness of the word God. He is God. Everything that it says about it and, and all that that means. Which makes sense if you just look at this. Look at this short list that we've looked at. These are, these are weighty truths. And the more we learn about God, the heavier he becomes, the more glorious, the more vast he grows. I mean, there are, there are many things that make the Lord glorious. We've just looked at a few, including the one mentioned here. What does it mention here in this verse? What does it mention in, in verse 8? Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. So here's just mentioning his might, his strength and his might. That's what makes him glorious. But that, 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 it, is, it is those things that point out, hey, this is a king like no other on the earth. There's no king like this. This is why glory and, and holiness are often tied together in Scripture. God is, God is great. He is weighty. He is vast. And that makes him holy meaning there's there's nothing like him he's unlike any other king unlike any other god god is the king of glory he is the king of the of the highest glory so that's why it's no shock that when jesus enters the scene and comes as the king of kings he is praised as the glorious king so if you look at Luke 19 Luke 19 you've got the triumphal entry into Jerusalem you've got this great fulfillment of the the promise from Zechariah uh, the, uh, of this king coming on a colt 
And, and what praises do they sing to King Jesus? What do they say? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. God is the king of glory, glory in the highest. There is no king like our God. And because there is no king like him, there is no kingdom like his kingdom. And so we want his kingdom to come. We want his kingdom to come because it brings with it the great king. But in talking about these things, we've actually made a common mistake. We made an exegetical mistake that we sometimes do, uh, which is missing the most obvious reason that we want God's kingdom to come. And it's the one found in this very text. Who is going to be the king? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. What makes God, why should you want God to come as king? What makes this king so great? This king is our Father. We don't want, just want the kingdom of the king to come. We want our Father in heaven. We want his kingdom to come. We want your kingdom to come, Father. And so of all these great things that we saw, I mean, and there's a reason I put this last, because I wanted us to see all the great things about who God is as king. All of the things that make us go, man, that is amazing. That's, that's crazy. Like, that is, I don't, I don't even, I can't even understand some of these things. I don't get them. Like, I think I might understand his might, but there's no way, I mean, that I can really understand his might. There's no way, I mean, that I can even understand his love for righteousness and his hatred for wickedness. I can't do that. I can't understand what makes him so great, his protection, his guidance, the way he defends his name, the, way, the fact that he is creator. Like I can't grasp all of that. And yet to know that his care, his protection, his compassion, his mercy, all of those things, as king, he's going to work those things on our behalf because he loves us. You're going to have a king who loves you as his children. That's why, we, I mean, we can get upset all we want to about the government, right? And you have every right to be. But take that and recognize, well, that's what's going to make the kingdom of God so great. Is you're going to have a king who does everything in defense of his name and for the glory of his name. And that includes what? He is going to be the king who takes care of his children. It's not just going to be a king who's going to come. It is going to be our father. And of course, of course, we would want our father to reign. I mean, I mean, how many Disney movies are there about all these people finding out, hey, you're really a princess or hey, you're really a prince and your your daddy's a king. And it's like, well, I, I'll be. And the Lord's like, when you pray your kingdom come, Father, your Father is going to reign and to reign forever. Why would you not want that? Your perfect heavenly Father. So why do we want his kingdom to come? Who else would we want on the throne? Who else but our Father? And so 
Why do we want our Father's kingdom to come? Because there's no king like Yahweh. There's no king like the one true God. He is the great king. He is a king who protects his people, king who guides his people, a king who uplifts his name. I'm just going through all the verses that we've seen. He is a king who doesn't just uphold, but who creates. He is a king who loves righteousness, who hates wickedness. He's the king who alone is mighty. He is the king of glory, and he is our father. Why do we want God's kingdom to come? Because there is no king like our God. All the kings of this world are but broken shadows in God and in God alone. We will have a great and glorious king of all kings. Let's pray. This week, just like last week, I just want us to take a moment and give God the glory and praise that he, I mean, if he is the king of glory, he should be able to move his people to have a moment where they stop everything and tell God how glorious he is. So right now, just in your prayers, just tell God how glorious he is. Just give him, just a, I mean, we've just seen a snippet of his glory. Tell God how great he is, how amazing. Grab one of those things, whether it's his might or his love for righteousness, his hatred for wickedness, which is the fact that he's a great king, whether it's the fact that he's a king of, king of glory. Take any of those things. The fact that he protects you, that he guides you, that he's your father. Plenty of options. Just take one of those and praise God with all of your heart for that. I mean, this week, what, what, I, what I want this to be this week as, as we're praying, I want this to be our worship. That as we're asking for God's kingdom to come, let, let this be the why behind your prayer. Even voice it in, in your prayer. I want your kingdom to come because you are going to be an, a great king. There's no king like you. And so, Father, let your kingdom come. So right now, just praise God that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. And praise him that what we're asking for, for his kingdom to come, we know that he has worked in Christ. The king come seated on a colt to bring peace and glory in the highest. Father, we want to spend today, we'll spend this moment and just worship you. Because the one thing that happens when we worship you and when we lift our eyes and, and, and think about you and your holiness and your glory is it does remind us of our sin. And it does lead us to repentance. And so sometimes, fathers, we're gearing up even to just praise you as, we're, as we are walking our minds closer to you. We realize the things that we need to shuck aside. And we can, by your grace, we can confess those things, repent of them right now, and then boldly approach your throne through Jesus Christ. And so, Father, whatever it was, God, that we've seen, and maybe it's just not giving you the glory that you're due. Maybe it's just not thinking about you as great as you truly are. Whatever it is, Father, I pray that today we will spend these moments and this week really just move to worship. You are worthy. This is your worship. There is no one like our God. No king like our God. No king like our Father. And so, Father, we come to you today as we think about your Son that made us sons and daughters of the kingdom. 
And we pray that you are worshipped here with joy inexpressible, filled with glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.